0: The children are dismissed for children's church, so if you're up through grade 4, I believe that you are allowed to depart, and you will have uh, a good time in the back. Uh, The rest of us, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 15. We are in John chapter 15 today. We talked about John chapter 14. We are in the section of the Gospel of John known as the Farewell Discourse. It is called the Farewell Discourse because Jesus has told the disciples that I will be departing and where I go, you will not be able to follow, that I am leaving, but I will come back to you later on. And the disciples are a little um, flummoxed. They're a little bit um, just mystified. They don't understand what's going on, but they know that they need to be connected to Jesus. And so in the midst of this, we have seen that Jesus in John chapter 14 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, We have read last week when when we see that Jesus is going to provide a helper for us. He's going to be providing a helper uh, when he departs, and that helper is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not only called the helper, he's also called the counselor. He's called the guide. He's the one who will illuminate. He will convict of the world of sins. He will guide and, and teach us in all these things. And so in the midst of that, he also says that you need to be um, empowered by the Holy Spirit and that how can you obey, how can you obey the commandments that I have given you? It is through the empowering of the Holy Spirit within your lives. But he also says in John chapter 15, he gets to a very familiar passage and it is the last I am statement within the gospel of John. And he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Well, let's read that. We're going to read through verse um, down through verse 11. So, hear the word of the Lord. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. And we all say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains Forever. All right. So the idea here is one of connection. It's one of abiding. We hear that word over and over again. So let me uh, explain. I'm going to do this. I'm going to explain how the vine dresser actually works in our own lives, and then I'm going to explain what it means to abide. We're going to define that word, and hopefully, practically, we can apply that in our own lives today. But before I begin, we're thinking about this idea of you. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Well, what are we talking about there? We're talking about vineyards, okay? We're talking about vineyards. We're talking about wineries. Uh, Where I came from in Virginia, I don't know if you know this or not, but there were actually 300 wineries in Virginia uh, today. It's a ton. And near Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, the home of Thomas Jefferson, I'll just call him TJ, um, because we're close. Uh, he has a little house called Monticello, which means little mountain. So Thomas Jefferson built this, um, this, this house on this little mountain called Monticello right outside of Charlottesville. It is a bucolic setting. It is a beautiful place to be. And, and around Charlottesville today, I don't know, there's probably a hundred different wineries all the way around. And one of the things about Thomas Jefferson, even though he wrote the Declaration of Independence, one of the things that when you go to Monticello, you recognize that he was really a naturalist at heart. So that he was always taking and cultivating different types of of seeds, uh, fruits, vegetables, and ornamentals. As a matter of fact, within his lifetime, Thomas Jefferson actually introduced and brought about 500 different varieties of fruit, vegetables, and ornamentals to Monticello. And if you go there today and you take the tour outside the grounds, it's just lovely. It's a lovely tour. Um, But one of the things that happened in Thomas Jefferson's life was that he became a diplomat to France. And while he was in France, he recognized that he really got a taste for French and European wine. And he recognized that the American wine, uh, because there, was na- there were native grapes in America, I mean, they were like um, sort of these, these muscadine grapes or these wild grapes, but these muscadine and these wild varieties of grapes were not as good for wine or bringing wine to you know, the fermenting process. It just wasn't good wine. And so what Thomas Jefferson said when he was over in Europe, what he tried to do is he brought back vines with him back to America. And he thought, I have grown so many different types of, of fruits and vegetables, but um, on Monticello, it's good soil. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take these different varieties you know, of, of champagne. And you know, champagne is not a, a type of wine as much as it is a, a region of France that actually grows a particular type of grape uh, that is then made into champagne. And so, um, you know, this is not like, I'm not a you know, sommelier or anything like that, but I'm just telling you what's going on. So Thomas Jefferson was bringing vines back to America And here's what he did. He was a colossal failure at being a a vineyard owner. Every time he would plant a European vine in the ground, it would die. It would last maybe a year, but then it would just wither. He tried 20 different varieties of grapes from Europe at different times. He would go over, bring them over, and every time it would die. Now, the problem and the issue for him was this. He didn't know it at the time, but the reason was that within the soil of Virginia lies a small insect called phyloxera, and it's a small um, aphid, and it's also known as a root louse, and this microscopic aphid feeds on the roots of grapevines. It releases toxins that damage the vine's root structure, inhibiting it from absorbing water and nutrients from the soil. The wounds to the root also exposed it to fungal and bacterial infections and Jefferson didn't know why his European grapes repeatedly failed. He had a little way of knowing that the soil of his beloved Monticello, a soil that had been so productive for so long, was infected or infested. You see, the issue there is that the roots were connected and destroyed by these small microscopic insects. Now, the native Virginia wines their roots were actually immune to the aphids, to phylloxera. They had grown up and so they were proliferating. So the native grapes that he could have done were were immune to phylloxera. But every time he brought a European strain in, it died. Okay? In a similar way, for you and for me, we need to be connected to a healthy root system. Now, in the same way that every time he would bring a vine over and it would never produce fruit because it was attached to something that could not fend off the insects. In the same way, we are called to be connected to a vine, to a root structure that can defend us and that will be healthy. Because here's the deal. You can't be fruitful if the roots are contaminated. We actually call that the, the, the tap root within any seed is actually called the radical. Um, just from botanical standards. And so we need to have radically healthy roots in order for us to grow and to thrive as Christians. And what Jesus is saying in the midst of, of of really what he's saying in terms of John 15, is that we need to manage our root system, what we are connected to. If we are connected to something that is going to harm us, it will harm us, and we will cease to bear fruit. Now, this idea of the uh, vineyard is a, an Old Testament theme. A number of times throughout the Old Testament, Israel, the people of God, were called the vine. As a matter of fact, in Psalm chapter 80, verse 8, it says this, you brought, and this is what the psalmist says, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. This is clearly a reference to Israel. The psalmist goes on. It says, You cleared the ground for it. You, it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade. The mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. The psalmist was declaring that God's people as the vine were to extend blessings to the nations. They were to cover the mountains with shade and send out their branches to the sea. They were to fill the earth. This was the mission of Israel. And so when you're connected to the Father through the Son, then you will actually be a blessing outward. There's fruit that occurs, right? But what happened in the Old Testament, and we see this in the prophet Isaiah in chapter 5. We see it in Jeremiah chapter 2. We see it in Hosea chapter 10. They were talking about the vine's failure to produce fruit. As a matter of fact, um, when we think about Isaiah chapter 5, Verse 4, it says this, What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? Or sometimes that's actually referred to as useless grapes. Again, further down in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 7, it says this, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. And what he says by there, it's not an outcry, it's an outcry saying like, these people of God are no longer following me, they are actually like leading people into sin, leading people into transgressions of my ways, leading people into Baal worship or Asherah worship. If you read first and second Kings or Chronicles, you just read how the Kings are perpetually just following after false gods. So when Jesus comes, when Jesus comes and he says that I am the vine, what he's saying is that I am the perfect vine. I am the true vine. That which God had set up, he is sending me to be the true vine and I will grow. And if you are connected to me, then you will grow and the fruit that you will produce will be a blessing not only to you and to your own souls, but it will actually be a blessing to all of those around you. Now, in the midst of this, um, we see this. We see this. This is an announcement when Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. He is saying this. He's saying, Jesus is the source of the grace and blessing from the father. Think of the branch that is growing out of the vine. The branch must stay connected to the vine. And he's saying, you guys need to be connected to me. He's asking the disciples, do not wander off into other things. And in a similar way, he's saying that to us. Do not be disconnected from me. Stay connected to me. And he's saying this, the branch must stay connected to the vine. In springtime, the branch must stay connected. In drought, the vine must stay connected to the branch for the branch to thrive. When the fall comes and it is harvest, the branch must produce. It must stay connected to the vine. Remain attached, and it is the responsibility of the vine to give the nourishment to the branch. Get that, okay, for a second. When we stay connected to Jesus, he is saying, it is my responsibility to nourish you through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, do you know what we call a branch that is disconnected from the vine? We call that garbage. (laughs) Or we call it a stick, okay? What's the difference between a branch and a stick? A branch is alive, a stick is dead, okay? A stick is not connected to the branch, which is connected to the trunk, which is connected to the roots. A stick is a dead branch. Now, what he's saying there is he's saying that if you can stay connected to Christ, if you have Jesus, you have everything. And without him, you have nothing. Now, notice what it says. That if if, if you don't have me, you can do nothing. Or sometimes I actually say in verse 5, no thing at all. Now, the father is the vine dresser here. In John chapter 15, verse 1, it's very clear. Sometimes Jesus actually will say things in riddles or, or parables, but here he's actually explaining himself to the disciples. And what he says is the father is the vine dresser. Uh, Jesus is the vine and the father is the vine dresser. He is omniscient. He can see all things. And there are two primary activities that the father will do. Now, first of all, let me, let me explain what I think is happening in uh, the very first section here. In, in verse 2, it says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. Now, there are two things that the vine dresser will do in order to actually grow more fruit. Now, I think that oftentimes what we think about is we think about the first section there is that he takes away. We think about the, the, the branch being taken away and thrown into the fire. I think that comes later. A better translation, or I think a better understanding of this is this. Um, you could also translate that Greek word rather than every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he lifts up. Rather than takes away, that the vine dresser will lift up. Now, I think that that is a, a good translation. And the idea is that the branches that are not bearing fruit, you know, he is actually lifting them up because vines in a vineyard grow in the air. And they grow in the sunlight so that the air can blow through them. In a vineyard, the vines and branches grow up on a trellis or some sort of stick and hang on an arbor. You've seen this. Many of you have been to a vineyard. You've seen this this vineyard and it's very telling. And, And oftentimes, again, in Virginia, one of the reasons that people go to vineyards is because they're beautiful areas. They're beautiful areas with, with beautiful stone you know, uh, walls, and they're just lovely areas. People get married in them all the time, and, and, and even on, on a couple different anniversary trips, Katie and I had, had been fortunate enough to go and actually stay at like a bed and breakfast on a vineyard, and it was fun because then we would walk in and among the different vines that were growing, um, and it's just a really, really beautiful place. But every time, the vines are always lifted off of the ground, What Jesus is saying is that every branch that does not bear fruit, he lifts up in order to encourage greater growth and development and fruit bearing. When we are low hanging and on the ground and propped up so that we might be stimulated for greater spiritual growth, the Lord Jesus Christ lifts us up for greater exposure so that we can thrive. Now, here's what I mean by that. This is why I think this is a valid interpretation because in the first two sections of chapter, verse two is we see the positive ways that the vine dresser will actually take a vine and cause it to grow more and to be more fruitful. So when he, when he finds a, a vine that's on the ground, that is then susceptible to mold or being too wet and not getting the light, not getting the air going through it. And and again, I think about this in my own soul, but in the souls of you out there is when you are despondent, when you are disheartened, when life is just so difficult, do you ever feel that you're just laying on the ground and and the father, the vine dresser, he says, I'm going to lift you up in such a way. Now, how does that happen? Sometimes that happens by other people coming alongside you. The saints around us, the the people of God are meant to be in some ways maybe propping us up at times by praying for us, by caring for us, by by providing meals for us, by just encouraging us. Every time you are encouraging another believer in Christ, you are actually lifting them up. And and I I I believe that the encouragement comes through the power of the Holy Spirit, that that God is using people, um, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to lift others up. And we need that. Anybody here been disheartened this week? Anybody here actually heard a kind word or an encouraging word from someone and it just really, really bolstered their faith and they knew that they were not alone and they knew that somebody was praying for them and somebody cared for them? That's what it means to be lifted up off of the ground. In a similar way, I mean, you see, you know, like small children when they, when they fall down, you know, we, you, we, we go and we gather them up. You know, we gather them up and we lift them up. We lift them up in our arms so that they know that they are loved. And children that are loved can then grow. Secondly, we see that the vine dresser, um, he not only lifts up every branch that does not bear fruit, but every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. So think about this. So this idea is he, he, he lifts up the branches that hinder growth, um, but he also, the, the ones that are bearing fruit or not bearing enough fruit, he actually will prune them. And so the idea of pruning is this idea that you would take apart um, maybe even a, a branch that is growing and you want it to grow even more. And so this idea of pruning is, is to cut away, maybe, maybe there's a diseased portion within the branch or there's a, a branch that is going to grow and will not produce as much fruit. So you prune it so that it will grow more. Now we understand that in a sense, but what we're saying here is that we are the branches that are being pruned by the Father. Now, I w- I'm here to tell you that I do not want to be cut on at all ever, okay? Okay. And yet that's what we see here, that a good father will actually bring about pruning in your life. He will take away things from you that are hindering your growth. The issue here is that oftentimes when something is taken away from me, I act like a three or four year old and it was my favorite toy even if that toy is going to hinder my growth, when it's taken away from me, I become very upset that my toy or whatever it is is taken away from me. But if we have a good father who loves us and we're connected to Jesus, he says that he will actually bring about some sort of pain. And again, if you're the branch and you're being cut on, there's pain involved so that you might grow. We think about that. in in the midst of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7, with regard to the discipline of the Lord in the midst of the family of God. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7 says, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more to be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. If, any, if there were any children left here, they would all say amen, right? They're like, oh yeah, discipline's painful, right? But later, this discipline of the Lord, this pruning of the Father, staying connected to, to Jesus, that the Father will prune us, that he will bring discipline in our lives. But later, this pruning yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So this idea of pruning is a difficult thing for us. You know, sometimes, in the midst of you know, the ministry of the Word itself, it's, it's meant to, that, that the Lord will actually comfort the afflicted. And I think of that, we see that of being lifted up, the disheartened, what we were just talking about. But I think he also will afflict the comfortable. Get that? That I think he also comforts the afflicted, but he also afflicts the comfortable. Meaning, Then you become very comfortable in your life. You become again. I even prayed about this in the prayer of confession. When we try to turn this world into heaven, we are wrongheaded because we are bound for a greater place. We are bound for a place that there will be no more sin, and yet we strive within our own lives to make this heaven. And there are times when God will take away the things so that we might grow in holiness but also reliance upon him. You ever been in your life where a difficulty has drawn you closer to the Lord? We see that in in the midst of of marriages sometimes, where a difficulty in your marriage actually galvanizes and, and, and brings you together in a way that you had never felt before. In the same way, the Lord will afflict the comfortable in a way that makes them lean hard upon him. Now again, we see this happening in John chapter 15, verse 1. It says, and he does this so that we might bear fruit, that we might bear more fruit. He says, already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you in verse 3. But then he changes what he's talking about in terms of pruning, and he talks about this idea of abiding in faith. Now, before we get to abiding in faith, I want to try to connect this to our culture and where we are today, among even non-Christians. I think within the yearning of the hearts of men, there is a yearning to be connected to something. In In a book called Making Faith Magnetic, five hidden themes our culture can't stop talking about and how to connect them to Christ Uh, a man named Daniel Strange um, writes about them and the first one that he writes about is this idea he calls it totality and what he, he says is this is that everybody has this idea of what is our place in the universe what am I connected to who are we as human beings We have this sense that we do not stand alone as islands in the universe, but somehow belong to something bigger and something greater than ourselves. And he goes, regardless of whether or not you're a Christian or not, you could be, you know, an atheist, an agnostic, a Hindu, a Muslim. There's this yearning to be connected to something greater than ourselves and even an understanding. And so what we're doing is we're pursuing some sort of understanding about what that is and how we are called to live in the midst of this fallen world. Now, let me give you a couple of examples of this, that we yearn for connection to something bigger than ourselves. Um, Sports is the first one. On Friday night, um, the staff, we all went to a a KC Royals game, right? And by the way, it was probably the greatest KC Royals game of this year uh, because it was a 10-inning affair on a Friday night with fireworks, and in the bottom of the 10th inning, Bobby Witt hit a a walk-off grand slam that won the game. And I got to tell you, there's a part of being at the stadium where when somebody wins like that, you begin to high five people. You haven't talked to these people at all. You don't know who these people are at all. And yet there's a feeling that you are all a part of it. Now, I didn't hit the ball. I didn't throw the ball. I'm not on the field. But you have a part of being a part of it because you're all wearing like Kansas City Royals. You're high fiving people that you've never talked to who are totally strangers. The same thing happens over in like Geha Field or whatever it's called, uh, former Arrowhead or whatever. You know, the same thing happens when something, a first down happens or anything happens sports stadiums there's a yearning within the hearts of all men and women to be connected to something greater than themselves now that's that's an easy example how about this we see this um, whether it's um how about this how about pride marches that occur you know when we see you know they're they're outsiders that are able to join together for those participating, oftentimes in a pride march, there's a real feeling of invulnerability around these events, because you know you are still a little person, insignificant and vulnerable, and you're surrounded by people who are on your side, quote unquote. You might not know anybody, you might know one person, but you also have the sense that these strangers around you who will probably never speak to you would have your back. Now, I'm not advocating for pride marches, I'm just saying Part of the reason that people get involved is that they want to be a part of something bigger. They want to say, I actually have people around me who can understand me and love me. I think everybody yearns for that, to be understood, to feel a part of something bigger. In another way, let me illustrate it in this way, um, What about sort of a national pride that we see? Let me use the French national pride for a second. I'm talking about Thomas Jefferson in France. How about this? Back in April 2019, when Notre Dame, the cathedral, was severely damaged by fire. Okay? How many of you guys have been to Notre Dame? Not like South Bend. I mean, like the one in Paris, the real one, right? Okay? I mean, it's a pretty amazing structure, or, or it was, right? Here's what happened. When the 850-year-old Notre Dame Cathedral was severely damaged in fire, uh, by fire in April tw- 2019, there was newspaper headlines like, Notre Dame is us, it is Paris, it is the world too. That was, was a headline in a French paper one billion euros was quickly raised for restoration work. President Macron's speech in the aftermath described it as our history and the epicenter of our lives. Think about this. The president of France said the epicenter of his life is a Catholic church. Don't you think about that? And he said, I am solemnly telling you tonight this cathedral will be rebuilt by all of us together. What, What a... What was fascinating was the degree of sentimentality expressed for a religious building from a country that is so avowedly secularist and post Christian. The Parisians love their cathedral, but seemingly want nothing to do with God. And yet they want to be part of something bigger. And they see this as, as yearning for that. Not only do we yearn to be connected, you know, maybe within a country, within a sports team, uh, within, within a cause. We also see this, like we we yearn to be connected to other people, and we spend a lot of time. A lot of people today are spending a lot of time trying to be connected to somebody else. We think about some of the dating sites that are out there. People are actually becoming addicted to dating sites. We might think about things like eHarmony or Match.com or Her, Silver Singles. You know, is there a way to connect? What is my relationship with with other people? And there's this yearning that, that, is, that is within the hearts of every man and woman to be connected. And yet, they want to be connected, but not lose their identity. How do I continue to be an individual and have autonomy, but still be connected to something greater than myself? That is what we see. That is what Daniel Strange is calling totality, this yearning. And what Jesus is saying in John chapter 15, and what all Christians are saying throughout history is this, is that it's not thinking about a cause, but it's thinking about a person, and his name is Jesus. You see, Jesus, let me, let me quote, um, quote Tim Keller here. He says, Jesus gives us an identity that connects us rather than isolating us. He is the only one who can provide a moral norm that doesn't descend into moralism. He alone brings a finished, accomplished deliverance rather than one we must perform ourselves. He is the one thing you can live for that does not enslave you, but actually liberates you. Through our connection to Jesus, I want you to hear this, we are known, we are forgiven, we are adopted, we are sanctified, and are never alone. He is always with us and always loves us. So no matter how disconnected we feel in our lives and relationships, we can never say we are alone or that no one understands us. Jesus knows. Jesus understands because he is one of us. We can come to him at any time for for anything and anywhere and in any circumstance. Jesus' connection with us is one of total and unbreakable solidarity and compassionate comfort. That's who Jesus is. He does all of that for us. And he is calling us to stay connected to the one place, the one person in your life who will do all of that for you. But apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. Nothing. I mean, I love the fact, when you think about it, forgiven, adopted, sanctified, and known, and never being alone. Now, I think that that's one of the ways, the reason I go into that today is I think that that's one of the ideas that we can bridge sort of our friends who don't know Jesus. One area, of again, the idea of totality, the idea of being connected to something bigger than themselves. If we can connect that to Jesus, that's just sort of one step along the way of evangelism. And by the way, we, being connected to the vine dresser, are called to be producing more fruit, blessing others now there's this word that that occurs throughout so not only does the vine dresser lift us up not only does he prune us uh, and 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 hopes that we can connect but there's this word called abide and this idea of abiding in christ so and, and this is uh what we need to be thinking about this idea of abiding in christ is this idea of continuing in and remaining in to dwell with or to live with to stay in place and stay still We think about this in the idea of, I want want to define it in these terms, it's the idea of um, resting, relying, and remaining in Christ. There's three R's. I did three R's just so it'd be easy for you guys to understand it and remember it. So what does it mean to abide in Christ? It means to remain in, to not be moving about, but to be anchored in our devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. It means that we say that Jesus really is the only answer for a broken world that is ravaged by sin. Jesus is really the only person who is worthy of our worship. It is staying connected to him, remaining with him, you know, being in close proximity. So remaining in Christ means that I'm in my Bible, I'm in prayer, I'm in fellowship. Because what happens is by abiding in Christ and being connected with him, We are not only connected with him, but we are connected with each other. Because the beauty of being a part of the vine is that we get to be called, you know, or be a part of the family of God. So remaining with Christ, an aspect of remaining with Christ is to be remaining with the people of God as well, because he gives us communion with the Father vertically, and then he brings us into fellowship in the family of God horizontally. So, to remain with Him means that we're in our word. We're in prayer. Which, and and by the way, I mean, you're doing the same thing you're doing right now. You're actually attending church, you're coming in and worshiping He who is worthy. In the same way that, you know, many of you stood up and took a vow today. You took a vow. You took a vow to these little girls and to their family to, to take care of them, to encourage them, to love them in Christ. That's a beautiful thing. But not only are we called to remain, but there's this idea of resting in the Lord as well. The idea is that you are trusting in him and looking to him, and you are resting um, in a similar way that you are resting in the pew. Maybe they're not that comfortable, but you're resting right now by sitting down where you are. You're resting in Christ. Even in the midst of waiting, and some of you are waiting, in the the midst of disease and illness and sickness and frustration, what does it mean that we can rest in Christ, that we can believe his promises, that he will never leave us nor forsake us what does it mean that, in, that we are similar in Psalm 131, that we are like a weaned child? And I talked about this last week, like a weaned child with its mother, that your soul is not restless within you, but your soul is finding rest and you're able to push out the noise of all that's around you we remain with Christ. We rest in Christ. In a similar way, um, when you go to the nursery and you're helping out the nursery and, and maybe you are actually get the opportunity, you know, to, uh, to be with the Bernard girls and, and when they learn how to read or they're, they, have you ever seen little children, and, I, and I've used this as a metaphor, I love it when a child, like, a, like an 18-month-old two-year-old uh, grabs a book and they come to you and they just spin around because you're sitting on the floor. You're sitting on the floor, and they bring you a book, and they spin around, and they should have like a little like beep thing where they go beep, 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 and then they just fall into your lap. You guys know what I'm talking about there if you have children. It's a wonderful thing when a child feels so comfortable that they can just rest and just read, or you can read to them, and they just sit there like, I'm happy, right? I'm, I can rest, The other idea of of not only that is to rely upon Christ. That's a moment-by-moment dependence upon the Lord. To draw upon his resources for everything that I need. I'm relying upon his peace. I'm drawing upon his strength. Every need in my life is a conscious choice against relying upon myself. I'm relying upon him alone. J.C. Ryle says this, to abide in Christ means to keep up a habit of constant close communion with him, to be always leaning on him, resting on him, pouring out our hearts to him, and using him as our fountain of life and strength, as our chief companion and best friend. To have his words abiding in us is to keep his sayings and precepts continually before our memories and minds and to make them the guide of our actions and the rule of our daily conduct and behavior. We need to be connected to the vine. We need to be abiding. You know, we need to be remaining and resting and relying upon Jesus. And we need to make sure that we are connected to the root system that is not being attacked by you know, pests. But rather, we need one who is strong, who can protect us. Let me, let me um, give you the end of the story about Thomas Jefferson. You know, see, after Thomas Jefferson died, and again he did not know about phylloxera. Phylloxera came to French vineyards around 1850, and it came um, and it came by way of the Atlantic. And so, you know, people who were going back and forth, you know, vineyard workers could actually carry the, these small uh, microscopic aphids on their shoes and wherever they would go. And so, eventually, these phylloxera actually made their way across the Atlantic to France, and it devastated the French vineyards. In 1850, it was actually called the, the Great, um, I think it was called the, the Great French Wine Blight. And this phylloxera w- were carried over the Atlantic— um, and the leaves would become discolored, turning yellow and eventually red, and then they would dry up and fall. And it was, it was actually uh, going to devastate. And, and over 15 years, from 1850 to 1865, phylloxera killed nearly 40% of French vines and threatened the entire European wine industry because every time they would actually take uh, a branch and they would take something that was dead and they would look at the roots, they wouldn't find any insects there because the insects had already moved to the next one. And so they they... they but finally, someone came over the, somebody looked at an almost dead vine and began to say, like, this is the problem. You have these small insects who are devastating the roots. And so what happened, and this is a totally true story. This is amazing. So just as the, um, there was only one option, but the growers didn't want to do it. There was one option, but the growers in France did not want to do it. And it was called reconstitution. In order to save the vineyards, they had to graft their healthy vines onto North American rootstock that was immune to the attacks of these small aphids known as phylloxera. So they would take healthy vines and graft them into the root system because the North American roots were immune, right? But the French were like, um, and I'm not going to do an accent. I'm tempted to, though. I am. But they basically said, we do not want... The American roots, you know, entangling with our plants, it will destroy them Or because they felt great national pride and identity. And so rather than actually grafting them into the roots, many of them said, you know, we're going to try, you know, they, they brought in chickens to try to eat them. They brought in insecticides, but it didn't work. The only ones who really were able to do and flourish were those who reconstituted because they needed to be connected to a different root that would protect the vines, That's how the French saved the wine country. They brought North American roots into their wine country because then they were connected to something that would not be destroyed. Brothers and sisters, it's the same thing for us. We need to be connected to Jesus. Only in Jesus is there victory. Only in Jesus is there salvation only in jesus is the forgiveness and adoption into the family of god by the way those french vineyards the reason that there's so much so many vineyards today in america is after all of these vineyards were established in the late 1800s with north american roots then americans went over and brought the good vines with the north american roots back to America and that's where you see this proliferation of vineyards all over in like Washington and California and Virginia and New York and Oregon that's how we see that occurring you see the vines have to be protected so that they can bear much fruit brothers and sisters in front of us today we have the table of the Lord And it says this, like if you are connected to Christ, if you are joined to Christ, then this table is for you. That this bread and this this juice, this fruit of the vine, as it were, is meant so that you might flourish, that you might understand that you are saved only in Christ and you are knit together and that you can commune with the Father through Jesus the Son. And we do this as the family of God. One of the, the blessings of doing communion the way that we do it is that you get to come forward as a part of the family of God. It's a beautiful picture that we have in front of us because this bread represents his body broken for us. This cup represents his, uh, the new covenant in his blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. And he says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And why do we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes? Because it is, because it is only through the penal, substitutionary death of Jesus that we are saved and adopted into the family of God. And it is only by being connected to Jesus that we will bear much fruit. We'll talk about more about that in the next few weeks. What does it mean to bear fruit? What does it mean that we are connected and bearing fruit so that the whole world is blessed? Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we are grateful for the signs and seals of the covenant of grace. And Father, I pray, Lord, that you would set apart this bread and this juice from their common use. And that you would bless us, Father, as you pour forth grace upon grace upon your people. Father, might we trust and believe more and more. And, Father, might we be joined to Jesus. Might we remain with him and rest in him and rely upon him as he has promised in the gospel. Father, we need your help. So, Father, would you bless us as we partake. Father, fill us up so that we might love more, that we might believe more.